1 Peter chapter 3 1 Peter 3 if you're visiting with us or you're pulling that Bible out you can in the seat in front of you seat pocket in front of you um, go to page 182 towards the back of that Bible 182 1 Peter 3 1 Peter 3, we're going to study it verses 13 through 18 this morning. 13 through 18. And as I normally do, I'll read the passage and then we'll begin. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18. And who is there to harm you? you're zealous for what is good but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness you're blessed but do not fear their fear and do not be troubled but sanctify the Christ Lord in your hearts always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you but with gentleness and fear having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. <clears throat> For it is better, if the will of God wills it, that you suffer for doing what is good rather than for doing what is evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all just for, jun- for unjust in order that he might bring you to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There's been all kinds of responses from the results of the election almost two weeks ago. You might be saying, oh man, not this. But I found a web article that's entitled, American Women Are Suffering from Trump Traumatic Stress Disorder. And, and being very serious, Sarah Jones, Thursday, November 10th, on Politicus USA, said this, quote, Since Donald Trump won his bid for the White House, the women of America have been suffering Trump traumatic, traumatic stress disorder. I wish I were kidding, but I'm not. This is real and it's serious. At first I thought it was just me, but then all of my friends told me they were too they too were unable to stop crying and in between crying were throwing up or so nauseated they couldn't eat they can't sleep they're having nightmares about Trump I thought this was a joke and then I kept reading the article and it was, they were serious now there were others that were more satirical in nature quote are you suffering from Trump acceptance resistance disorder tard this was a joke Quote, people with TARD are unwilling or unable to accept reality despite irrefutable evidence. And then the article goes on. Well, one thing is clear. Suffering is not a good thing. Right? Everyone can agree on that. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants hard I guess but nobody wants post-traumatic stress disorder 
Sometimes I think my father suffered from that. They didn't have a term for it. You just came back from war and you just had to deal with life. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to suffer from persecution either, do they? But what if I told you that it's a blessing? What if I told you that suffering leads to blessing? What if I told you that suffering for the sake of righteousness actually leads to God blessing you? By God's grace, because of God's grace, be wise, winsome weirdos in this wicked world. That's Peter's point in this book. And today, he gives us the formula for Christian weirdness. The formula is suffering leads to blessing. The formula for Christian weirdness, suffering leads to blessing. What will classify you as an absolute nutcase is if you really believe this. In a statement, suffering for the sake of righteousness leads to God's blessing. Short and sweet. I'll give you some more to unpack that for you. But if, if we believe this, then we've really lost it. <laughs> but it's true, because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Not just for His blessing, but then it's for our blessing. We get blessed. Because we get brought to God. I mean, that's the essence of the gospel. It's true. Because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And actually, I'll begin to state a case for you for next week's message. It actually also happened to Noah. Same thing. If we suffer for having good conduct in Christ, and I specify that because Peter does on purpose, we should sanctify Christ by speaking Christ, fearing Christ, living like Christ, because suffering for good leads to God's blessing and vindication. That's the point of verses 13 through 18 right there, that statement. If we, if we suffer for having good conduct in Christ, so how do we respond to that? We, we, we should sanctify Christ by speaking Him, fearing Him, and living like Him. What's the motivation? What's the reason? Because suffering for good leads to God's blessing and will lead to His vindication. Another way to put it, God will bless and vindicate us if we suffer for having good conduct in Christ. So there's no need to fear or be troubled by people, by our persecutors, or even by suffering itself. Instead, speak the gospel and live wise, winsome lives for Christ. There's another way to put it. We're called to be wise, winsome weirdos in this wicked world by the way we live our lives. We live so different from our culture so that our adversaries may see our good conduct and they'll glorify God. Some may even respond to the gospel. 
And this conduct is sometimes done within the context of unjust suffering. Unjust suffering, the emphasis we'll see here is persecution. Those who persecute us for our faith, but also suffering that happens that's not directly as a result of something that you've done. I mean, you get told you have cancer. You get told that you're going to lose your job. You get told that your health is now spiraling downward. Uh, something's happened in your family. Anything. A family member gets hit by a car or something. Any type of suffering that happens that's quote-unquote unjust. Look, God never said He would shield us from the external causes that may bring suffering. He never said He's going to keep that from us. But He did say He will stand with us, supporting us, and encouraging us to continue to live and proclaim the gospel in the midst of that difficult persecution or hard tough trials and then you get blessed for it he'll give you a blessing notice how he begins though in verse 13 who is there to harm you if you prove zealous or you become zealous for what is good Who will harm or who is going to harm us if we're zealous or if we're eager to do good? Expect an answer? No one. I mean, Peter's saying, look, even pagans, just absolute God-haters, will not persecute someone for doing what is good and right. This is why he mentioned in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, keep your conduct excellent among the unsaved. Because in the thing in which they're slandering you, they may be put to shame because they see this behavior in you, they observe it, and they glorify God. It can bring an opportunity by which they respond to the gospel because they see you living out the gospel in your life. They see us as a church living out the gospel. And they see there's something different about these people. That's, it's attractive. It's winsome. And that's why he even mentioned that if you want to have a love life, you want to see good days, chapter 3, verse 10, you'll live like this. There's benefit. A couple of that with verse 17. Notice verse 17. It's better, and notice the phrase, if God should will it so. Literally, if the will of God wills. Why, why does he say that? Because it may be God's will for us to suffer for doing what is right or good. But not necessarily. Normally, we won't face suffering if you're doing good or you're living for the sake of righteousness in Christ. Normally, Peter's saying that doesn't happen. I mean, what police officer is going to pull you over and say, you know what, you're going the speed limit. What's wrong with you? Although they will pull you over if you're going below the speed limit. They, they will. My, they pull them over my wife. She, oh, I didn't know this. That's 50 mile hour, lady. Why are you going 25? I'm sorry, officer. I mean, okay. Um, okay. So, I mean, what are they going to do? I mean, if you're a good citizen, quote unquote, they're not going to go, slap you normally they won't do that that's what Peter's saying okay well 
What do we do, though? How, how do we face persecution or unjust suffering when it does happen? Have the mindset. Suffering for righteousness leads to blessing. The formula. Suffering leads to blessing. Verse 14, notice how he begins. But, even if, there's a possibility, you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of doing what's right. This is part of the Christian calling. Chapter 2, verse 21. He says, you are blessed. So if we live for the sake of righteousness, but are persecuted or harmed, because of that, God will bless us. He, he mentioned that in chapter 2, verse 20. If you're doing what's good, doing what's right, and you suffer, patiently enduring it, this is grace with God. Here he says, you're blessed. So, and, and you know, there's, there's the, uh, what does blessed mean? It can mean praise, it can mean benefit, it can mean happy. Will you benefit? Yeah, maybe. Is it praise? I don't know. It seems kind of odd. But it seems more like he's saying, you will be satisfyingly joyful. You have happiness. There's also the fact that God will benefit you. Which we'll look at that in a second. So he's saying this. It's true some Christians will suffer for doing what's good persecuted for the sake of righteousness, facing abuse from non-Christians, uh, even Christians. Yeah. Yet, in Christ, we find true happiness. Remember chapter 1, verse 8? Though you don't see Him, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, but you are, because you're believing in Him, you have inexpressible joy. They cannot ultimately injure us. Because life is Christ and death. That just merely puts me in a place that I want to be anyways. Right? If we end up suffering unjustly for doing what is good, God promises He will bless us. Not, not, not taking away the suffering. and say that. But He'll bless Think about it. Paul said this, if God is for us, who can be against us? John Knox said this, quote, with God on his side, man is always in the majority. If we do evil and someone harms us, we have only ourselves to blame. Right? But, if we do good and harm comes, God is with us, He strengthens us, He'll bless us. That's the formula. So, don't fear. Or be disturbed or be troubled. Verse 14. Don't fear their intimidation. Literally, don't fear their fear. And don't be troubled. Don't fear their fear or intimidation. Don't be, uh, the word means shaken, agitated, troubled by their intimidation. Don't be, don't be agitated by that. Don't be, don't be troubled. Don't be uh, uh, shaken. When they're trying to put fear into you. Because you're, you're trying to have good conduct in Christ. They're trying to demean you. And, and disgrace you. And shame you in that. He says, don't, don't let that bother you. 
He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. I think some of your Bibles might have that capitalized. Isaiah, the Lord, speaking through Isaiah, the Lord spoke to me. He said, You're not to fear what they fear, or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And He shall be your fear. And He shall be your dread. That's why in just a moment we're going to look at how He says, You sanctify Christ by speaking Christ, fearing Christ, and living Christ. Don't fear them, fear Christ. Don't fear people, fear God. The Lord called Isaiah to tell the people to fear him. Peter picks up this command, ascribing to Jesus' deity, and says, don't fear people, but fear God, fear Christ. Or, in other words, the next point. Sanctify Christ by speaking Christ, fearing Christ, and living Christ. Sanctify Lord, the Christ, or the Christ Lord. In contrast to fearing our persecutors, those who may harm us for doing good, fear should be directed to the Christ Lord. And here, when he says sanctify, sanctify means to be holy. Not in the sense of making Christ holy. We don't make Christ holy. He just, he just is holy. The idea is declaring or treating Him holy. Accord Him the proper place in your life. Christian, does Jesus have the proper place in your life? He's the one who is holy. He's the one whom you should fear. He's the one whom you should dread. Not people. Not our persecutors. Not even the suffering that you're facing itself. Not any of that. You dread Christ. You love Christ. You fear Christ. Notice he says, Christ, the Christ Lord, in your hearts, the wellspring of life, says the writer of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. See, suffering, suffering shouldn't bother us because we have dedicated our entire lives to Christ Jesus. That's the mindset. I'm just going to get blessed. So bring it on. Uh, don't fear them. In other words, acknowledge God's, excuse me, Christ's holiness and authority in your life. In your lives. We are called to honor, trust, and obey Lord the Christ. That's what he means by sanctify. Always ready to speak and live out the gospel word to those who persecute us or harm us for doing good for righteousness sake. So we truly trust Christ. We have inward confidence in Christ. And we have the will to obey Christ, not wanting to dishonor Christ in any way. That's our thinking. And that's why he says you sanctify Christ. And how are you going to do that? How is it going to show itself? By first speaking Christ. Always ready, next part of verse 15, always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You sanctify Christ. How? You're ready to speak Christ. 
speak the gospel. Always ready, he says. There's a sense of urgency because the opportunities to give the gospel usually are unexpected. They come at you and you, you'll walk away. You went, I am such an idiot. I could have given that person the gospel. There's an open door. What was I thinking? I wasn't thinking. Right? You've had that happen. I've had that happen numerous times to me. Frustrates the dickens out of me. If we're not prepared to answer, we can miss the opportunity to give the truth. And so this, you're, you're sanctifying Christ by speaking Christ and the purpose so you can have a defense. Defense is the Greek word apologia. Whether in a formal or informal situation, whether you're actually in a court scene or it's in your backyard with your neighbor. We should be prepared to defend the gospel. Tell you what, living in a pagan society, it puts you on trial every day. You always feel like you're on trial. To give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. To give a reason. Or to give an answer. We must always be ready to speak to the unsaved about the gospel. So we probably should know the gospel. That's probably a good idea. What is the gospel? God, man, Jesus respond. God is holy and just our creator. He's not obligated to us. We are totally obligated to him. Humans, we are sinners. We've rebelled against him and broken his law. We deserve his judgment. We are totally obligated to him. But God is also love. He's righteous and just, but He's love and He's merciful and gracious. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, lived perfectly, was crucified, suffered and died upon the cross, and yet was resurrected. That's Jesus. Response, repent, turn away from your sin, and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's the Gospel. We should know the Gospel. And then pray, Lord, make me witty and clever to proclaim this gospel. To be ready to make a defense. Everyone who asks me to give an answer or reason for the account. Notice he says, for the account for the give an account for the hope that is in you. Hope is given to us in God. He said that in chapter one. Hope is a factual reality. It's not, I hope it doesn't rain today because I already washed my cars. <sighs> That's true. No, but it's not like that. It's, hope is a factual reality. Our lives are so drastically different that they ask us about this hope, this factual reality we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's future expectation. It's going to happen. We have patient, confident, expectant trust in the Lord. So we're speaking Christ. Now notice, how, how do we give an account? We speak with gentleness, he says. But with gentleness, or courtesy, or graciousness, or meekness. 
not hurtful slander. I was on Friday in Jerome. I, it was witty, and yet I think it was kind of strong, although she didn't respond in a negative way. If I had a nickel every time someone said this to me, me and all of us can retire tomorrow. That's how much money I can get from this statement. You ever heard this? I don't want any organized religion. So, no, I don't want any organized religion. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Would you rather have disorganized religion? And that's exactly, there was a group of us and they all started laughing. And I, and I kind of went, oh, maybe that wasn't so gentle, you know. <laughs> so don't follow my pattern. <clears throat> kind of felt bad. For, but, you know, there was no negative response to that. But, and then, then it was kind of, well, what I mean is, I, anyways. She said that. Well, what I mean is, interesting. Um, a side note, this is for free. You know, we don't live that way. Do you want a disorganized a way of driving? No, I'd, I'd like to have organized driving. How about you? I would. I don't want somebody driving on the right-hand side of the road when I'm trying to drive on the right-hand side of the road. Did, wouldn't you want organized driving? I do. Yeah. I, I don't want somebody driving uh, 200 miles an hour on, the, on, the, on my side of the road. We don't live that way. Anyways. I was going to go there with her, but anyways. We must hold our orthodoxy in humility. Yes, Christian, we are right, but not pridefully so. Yes, we are right, but not pridefully so. We hold our orthodoxy with humility. And notice he says, but with gentleness and reverence in the New American Standard, Excuse me. The Greek word is actually phabos. And remember, class, when Peter uses phabos, it's in reference to fearing God, not people. When Peter in his first Peter, this first Peter letter, when he uses the word phabos, the Greek word phabos, meaning fear, it's directed to God, not to people. So what he's saying is, you're gentle with the people, but you're fearing Christ. That's where fearing Christ comes in. We speak Christ and we fear Christ. We don't fear them, we fear God. We fear God, not those who persecute us for doing righteousness. We speak the gospel word with gentleness, fearing God, not them. Verse 16, having a good conscience. Which he'll describe in the next few phrases. It's good conduct in Christ. Our lives are oriented towards God so that our consciences are clear with lives that please Him. We can sincerely and honestly say we live our lives for His glory and the times where I don't, because there's many times that I don't, praise Him for His grace. That's why Jesus had to die. Yes, you're looking at a hypocrite. And I'm looking at hypocrites as well. But we stand before a God who brings forgiveness and grace. Notice once again, our relationship to God and Christ Jesus, it motivates us to have this good conduct. It motivates us to have this good behavior. It motivates us to sanctify Christ. 
and speaking Christ and we fear Him. And we speak graciously to other people. And notice the purpose that He gives here for doing this. So that, verse 16, in the thing in which you are slandered, in that situation in which they slander you or they abuse you, those who revile or malign your good conduct in Christ, notice the parameters, this is how we live, good conduct in Christ. This is what it means to live for the sake of righteousness. It's living for Christ, fearing Christ. We have a relationship with Jesus. We're living how we live. They may be put to shame. Or the word means disgraced. They're disgraced. The very way we live our lives the very way we live, which is drastically different from them, it shames hostile people. shames them. Now, now when, will be the, when will they be shamed? Now or a judgment day? Well, it seems like now. But even more so is it true, they will be ashamed on judgment day because everything will be revealed, right? But we live such good lives now that they may be shamed or disgraced and there may be an opportunity where as we're speaking Christ to them and we're fearing Christ, having sanctified Christ in our lives, they respond to the gospel. So all this, all this, wh why? What's, what's the reason behind this? Verse 17, why? Because it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better to suffer for good conduct rather than suffering for doing evil, he says. Or to suffer doing good is better than to suffer for doing evil. He talks about that in chapter 2, verse 20. And, and notice, suffering is under God's sovereign control. Uh, if God should will it so, or if the will of God wills, It may be, it may be God's will for us to suffer for doing what is right. His will is for us to do what is good, what's right, even if this results in suffering, rather than to do what is evil. That's His will. Besides, if we endure through this wrongful suffering, it may become a powerful opportunity to proclaim the gospel to someone where you can preach Christ. When we live for Christ and are subject to unjust suffering, we can have a guilt-free conscience and entrust ourselves to God knowing that He wants us to continue to do what's good and suffer for it. So the first reason it's because it's better to suffer for doing what's good. But then he gives a second reason. That's why verse 17 starts with four, and verse 18 starts with four. Verse 17 starts with gar in the Greek, and verse 18 starts with four. And this is a hati, which means here's the basis, here, here's an even greater basis for all of this that we're talking about. Because Christ's suffering led to his blessing and our blessing. Here's, here's, here's the driving point of everything that he's just told us. 
Why does suffering lead to blessing? What, what's going on here is because for Christ, for Jesus Christ, He did the same thing. And not only was He blessed, but then He, get to bless, he got to bless others. Us, His people. Notice what He says. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, just for unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. Now let me unpack this. This is a transition verse. It connects with 13 through 17 and connects us to 19 through 22. Which that's going to be a doozy next week. That'll be fun. The whole focus though in this section is Jesus Christ. His suffering to exaltation. So let me first unpack some of these words as well. I think your New American Standard Bibles have for Christ also died. ESV has for Christ also suffered. Why the difference? Some manuscripts have suffered, other manuscripts have died. For all you techies out there, it seems better given the immediate and larger context of Peter's letter that it would be Christ suffered rather than died. Scribes would have altered suffered to died rather than vice versa. But either way, it doesn't change the meaning. Does it? No, it doesn't. Notice for Christ also suffered. The correlation is that suffering is the path to glory. The point is not that we imitate Christ's suffering. That's not the point. He, he's not saying that. The point is not that we imitate Christ's suffering. The point is he assures us that Christ overcomes suffering and reigns supreme. The way of suffering leads to blessing and God's vindication. Jesus Christ is an example of that. It is mandated to us to keep speaking and living out the gospel word just like Jesus did, just like Noah did. Because he's going to give Noah as another example of this. Next week, 19 through 22. Mo uh, excuse me, did I say Moses? I said Noah, right? Noah. Noah did the same thing. Noah did this. He suffered. He was doing righteousness. He was doing what was right. He was doing what was good. He suffered for it, and yet he was blessed. In the midst of the judgment, he was being blessed. Because he was in a boat with a bunch of stinky animals. That ain't no paradise. That's why that man was still suffering. Mm -hmm. And then nasty. Mm. The path of suffering is leading to blessing. That was the path Jesus called his followers to take. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cupcakes, and follow me. Oh wait, no, that's... That's, that's probably the wrong version. I don't know. Take up his cross and follow me. The paradox. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Suffering leads to blessing. Followers of Christ, just like Noah, will have to tread the same path of suffering as they speak and live the truth. And since Noah was vindicated by God, saved, Christ was vindicated by God, resurrected, 
So we will be vindicated by God. And in the end, we will be saved. That's the ultimate blessing. Notice, again, Christ also suffered for sins once for all. In other words, suffering is finished for all time. And he did this for sins, on behalf of sins. Here you have vicarious or substitutionary atonement. Christ suffered on behalf of the sins of another. He died for his people. For that's the exact meaning of vicarious. Instead of hell, Christ suffered on behalf of us. For all those that would turn and trust in Christ. That's who he did it for. An actual salvation as he was hanging on the cross. And notice how he explains that even more. Just for unjust. It's not just talking about factual stuff. Oh, now it's personal. Because now it's a righteous man for unrighteous people. People full of sin. It's very clear that Jesus is the righteous one and we're the unrighteous ones. And notice the purpose. Here's, here's the blessing that we get now. In order that He may bring you to God some versions have you, others have us. Either way, means the same. So Christ's suffering is not an example for us to follow in this passage, but as a way to lead us or bring us to God. There's the blessing to have fellowship with God Himself, a relationship that was marred, broken, and wrecked by our sin. But Jesus' suffering deals with our sin and brings us to God to enjoy His presence and have fellowship with Him just like it was in Eden, in the garden. Fellowship, communion, connection, a relationship with God. John Piper says this, quote, the gospel is the enjoyment of fellowship with God Himself. God is the gospel. I mean, if, if you ask someone, would you want to... If, if you could go to heaven and, and you have the body that you've always wanted, the hair that you've always wanted, the eyebrows you've always wanted, right? You know, the calves that you've always wanted... You know? You know, everything is perfect for you. Great relationships. But God wasn't there. Would you still want heaven? That's the whole point of heaven. I mean, what does Jesus say? This is eternal life where you can have the body that you've always wanted. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Heaven is a relationship. 
why do you want forgiveness? Why do you want restoration? Why do you want freedom from sin? Why do you want to be justified? Why do you want the gift of the eternal life? Is it because you want to enjoy God? Is it because you want to be brought near to God? Let me put it in a negative way. If you only believe in Jesus to get out of hell, then you do not truly believe in Jesus. The purpose is not to get out of hell. The purpose is communion with God. That's the blessing you get now. John Piper again. Quote, The gospel love God gives is ultimately the gift of Himself. This is what we're made for. This is what we lost in our sin. This is what Christ came to restore. End quote. There's the blessing. Suffering leads to blessing. There's the formula. And then he says how Jesus did this. Or what it caused to bring us to God. Verse 18. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What does he mean by this? The meaning is put to death in the realm of the flesh, but made alive in the realm of the Holy Spirit. Spirit referring to the Spirit. Another way to put it, He moved from an earthly existence to a resurrected existence. Christ now lives as a resurrected person in the realm of the Spirit. The flesh means the human sphere of existence. The Spirit is the spiritual sphere or in the realm of the Spirit and His activity. It's lasting. It's eternal. That's how Christ did this. Or this is what, was, what caused us to be brought to God. What caused us to be brought to God is He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. That's the cause that brings us to God. So this formula of suffering leading to to blessing suffering for doing what is good and right that is good conduct in Christ it leads to God's blessing and you know how we know this is true because it happened to Jesus himself that's what we can hold on to that is the foundation of everything that he said since chapter 1 If we suffer for having good conduct in Christ, we should sanctify Christ by speaking Christ, fearing Christ, and living like Christ because suffering for good leads to God's blessing and vindication. It happened to Jesus. Are you going to follow Him? It happened to our Lord. Are you going to follow Him? Not in the sense of we're going to suffer for sins, but in the sense of if you follow Christ, you will suffer. But as He was blessed, and He gives the blessing, so you will be blessed. We could even say we give a blessing to others too, huh? Because we give them the gospel. By which they can get a blessing. Our Father, thank You. Thank You for Christ our Lord. The Christ Lord. 
Thank you that we have forgiveness. Thank you that we have justification. Thank you that we're given eternal life. But thank you as we come to this week. Thank you that we are no longer your enemies. We are your friends. Reconciliation, relationship, communion, connection to you, Father. We have your presence. We've been brought near. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Oh, let us be a people who speak you, fear you, and live out you, O Christ. We glory, we glory in you, Redeemer. Take some time, a few moments, a few moments of silence to ponder, to reflect what we've seen in God's Word. Take time to praise the Lord for the blessing of the Gospel. Maybe you want to pray for a person you know that does not know Christ, that you would speak Christ into their lives. Take some time, just between, between you and the Lord, a few moments, and then we'll do our time of giving with our last two songs and closing prayers.